The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Button click. And we're live. It is Friday, December 10th, 2021, 5.02 p.m. in Washington, 5.02 p.m. in Brooklyn, probably 11.02 p.m. in Paris. Is that fair, Claire? Yep. Yeah. Um, which is to say it's a late night for Claire. We appreciate her staying up. She was asleep when we tried to get her on Bastille Day in November, um, uh, but she is awake today. We are not okay. allowed to have fun anymore, people, but we are allowed to keep people up late in Paris uh, when they should be asleep. And welcome to them to the show. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much. So, what do you do here in lieu of fun? Well, we, we, you know, it's in lieu of fun started at the beginning of the pandemic um, when we... Uh, the pandemic in the United States. Yeah. Um, and uh, I said to, to Kate that we should get together every day at five for a drink um, and talk to somebody interesting and have a... Uh, and do it online so that people could join us be kind of like happy hour kind of like uh, i think we've done it basically every day since um until recently we were doing it seven days a week but now we do it five days a week and um there this is the uh 564th episode of in lieu of fun and um here you are thomas ilvis suggested that we talk to you which seemed like a great idea seven days a week that's yeah, hardcore. I actually kind of look back at this and in like partial, like I, I can't remember what I like, don't remember what my life was like when it was totally feasible for me to do seven days of, a week of the show. Well, don't you run out of things to say? No. No, because we have guests. We have guests. That's why you're here, so that we don't yeah. run out of things to say. For example, in 564 episodes, we have never once asked you what is the... Uh, uh, constitution of your uh, menagerie of stray and rescue animals. Uh, we have we have done rescue animals on the show. Kate rescued a cormorant and a very large sea turtle and a baby chipmunk. But we've um, but you're the first guest uh, whose bio says uh, she has a menagerie of stray and rescue animals. So tell us who's in it her beautiful oh, little face cats right now because it's been it's been a bad few years for animals aging off of this um, off of this mortal coil but this is Zeki and he's um if you watch him for a while you'll see that he has a strange he has a strange vestibular condition that makes his head sort of screwed on wrong but he's a cat so he doesn't mind he's not self-conscious about it these two hate each other as you can hear we've got a cat fight going on right here Oh, oh yeah, it's our first live cat fight on In Lua Fun. <laughs> Not really, Ben. Let's but, be honest. Yeah. <laughs> line M A F M A, and and this is this is uh, Sully. Sully's now quite an elderly gentleman, and he suffers from arthritis in his hips. So about thirty times a day, he comes over to the couch. This is this is Claire Central, the couch. This is where I've spent the last two years. Haven't really left it. And I, I lift him up and put him on the couch and put him back down and lift him up and put him back down. And he's really pretty happy with this arrangement. He's realized he doesn't actually need to do any jumping at all. I'm happy to do it all for him. That's very sweet. You're on this couch. So I have a very the... ancient, blind, deaf, and probably arthritic. Who knows? Like, she doesn't move around a lot either. Cocker Spaniel that it makes a frequent appearance in the show. But I, I love all animals. So, so, so I had are, are all the members of the menagerie cats? Uh, as of now, yes. yes. Um, he was from a litter of five that I found all at once. Oh my god! Wow! I found wow! 
So I, there is another subject which in 564 episodes of In Lieu of Fun we have never once discussed, and that is the cosmopolitan globalist. Um, and uh, I think we should break that streak, uh, and you should tell us all about it. Yeah. Okay, so I was sitting on this couch, you know, with the pandemic, and I had been here for... I was, I was you need it a little bit closer to the microphone, just a little bit. There you go. I'd been pretty solidly glued to the couch for about four months. I hadn't done anything. And um, my life was really just becoming Twitter. And um, one of the kind of constant, constant complaints on Twitter, me and my journalist friends would see some really badly written article about the country in which we lived. Because I've got journalist friends all over the world because I've been a journalist all over the world for like the last 30 years. We'd see a really badly written article and we'd complain about it. And then um, one day I said impulsively, hey, why don't we do something instead of complaining about it? Why don't we start a, uh, a news and analysis publication that meets our standards of professional excellence? And somehow, because I think because everyone was trapped at home and had nothing better to do, we actually, instead of just saying, why don't we do this, we actually did it. We got about 60... 60 odd people together working on this project to start um, a news and analysis magazine, or actually we're calling it a platform now because it's gonna be more than a magazine, um, that, that compensates for the complete decline of foreign news coverage, of foreign journalism in the entire Anglosphere media. Um, because I don't know whether you've noticed, a lot of people just haven't noticed, but there is no more foreign news coverage in the United States, it's just gone. It was um, at the height of the Cold War, about 40% of the news halt was foreign news coverage, and now it's less than 4%. 80% um, of the um, print news coverage is gone. It's just gone. And there's this huge gap where it used to be. Um, so, so how does it work? What's the, uh, you have, I mean, that's a large group of people. Where are they uh, dispersed among? And, and you know, you're running it as a substack. Who's editing it? Who's do like, how does, you know, who do you have writing for it? What, what are you guys doing? All right. So my co-editor, Vivek, is in Mumbai. And he and I are sort of basically the only two full-time people, along with our web designer, Amanpreet, and our podcast host, Monique. Um, we're completely volunteer for now. I mean, everyone's, everyone's doing this out of, out of love, <laughs> out of a sense that it really needs to be done, but we want to make it professional. We want to, we, and we've really enjoyed working on it. And we really do think that someone needs to be doing this because no one else is. And the, the old model for, um, for news coverage is never coming back. So we need to, we need right. to figure something new out. But it can't go on, you know, Americans getting no news from overseas ever or what they get. And what they get is ridiculous. All right, I think the story that that infuriated me so much that we began this is, do you, do you um, if you heard about this at all, you might have heard that there was a police shooting in France because that's what the headline was. It'll actually the headline police shooting in France was referring to a story in which a school teacher was beheaded in broad daylight by a jihadi. And the New York Times thought the key point of the story was it was a police shooting. So you know, this, is, this is the kind of thing where, where you just look at it and you know what the story is and you see the way it's reported and you're thinking they've got to get someone in France to cover a story like this because they've missed the point in such a big way it's not even funny. And what um is there other than is there like other than improving the quality and and having a distributed bunch of people all over the world um is there a sensibility that binds it together uh, yes. uh, is like a you know lawfare. We do national security law, right? Um, is there uh, is is there a 
political or or philosophical sensibility, or is it just like we want to bring you better foreign news coverage? No, we definitely have a shared sensibility. We definitely feel that Enlightenment, 18th century Enlightenment values are under threat around the world and under threat in very similar ways that people aren't aware of because they're not getting foreign news. Um, but um, we're, we're anti-populist, we're rationalist, we believe in free, free speech, free markets. Um, the things that everyone used to believe in, but now now are under threat everywhere. Well, I'm a little curious. Like, it would strike me as actually, if you're like in like kind of in in 18th century kind of beliefs of kind of like of enlightenment, that of course there was really poor coverage of foreign events, like for 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 audiences at that time, and that there wasn't like, and I'm not like saying that. Um, that you're not you're that you're saying differently but I, I just i'm curious like what is the golden age of um foreign so to speak or, or like um journalism that you're kind of like hearkening back to well the golden age of journalism for, for the united states certainly was during the cold war when um the u.s had massively funded huge bureaus around the world and set the international news agenda and fed all the wires and even small town newspapers sent foreign correspondents abroad because it was prestigious and they didn't realize that it wasn't profitable because people were buying a single item the newspaper and they weren't able to disaggregate the sports section from the comics from the stock market page so they were they were buying a whole package and editors sincerely believed they were reading the foreign foreign news um as soon as it, it was adorable of them wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> but even if you just go back to the 1970s um, and read the New York Times, you see that it's just a vastly more sophisticated product. It's a, it's better written, it's better edited, um, and the the foreign correspondents they weren't like they weren't 22 year old um, ingenues. They were they were really good at what they did. And Although there were some. I, I want to say there were some foreign correspondents who, well, when, when I was <laughs> when I was at the Washington Post, there were some foreign correspondents who were remarkably young and fabulous. I mean, uh, and so I do think I, I I largely agree with your point that there was just a culture of reporting foreign news that was. Um, uh, but it wasn't all grizzled old old you know, people who would have otherwise been CIA analysts sort of pipe smoking. There was a lot of, you know, kind of gritty young people who were on the make, which was great. Well, Vivek and I know each other because we both started our careers at Asia Times in Bangkok, which was full of exactly the character you just described. <laughs> grizzled old. Which one? Grizzled old. Google reporters who otherwise would have been CIA people yeah, couldn't figure out how how else this place was was funded. It, it wasn't like anyone ever actually read what we wrote. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So who do you have right before I get to your title, which I I want to I want to talk about the words cosmopolitan globalist because uh, I can't figure out if you decided to call your publication Jewish Jew uh, uh, for uh, ironically or uh, or for some other reason. Um, but before we get there, I, I want to ask, see, Kate, I told you she would know what I was talking about. Um, I know. Well, I never, okay, sorry, Claire, before you came on, Ben was like, those two words are code for like what you call Jews. And I was like, no one and knows I, that. For goodness sake, it's not code. It's like famous anti-Semitic slur. <laughs> this is exactly what Ben said. And I was like, okay. And so, sorry. This is like half of this show, just so you know, Claire, is like Ben describing to a, an, like a, a genetically Jewish person that like. The Kate's the most genetically Jewish, Jewish shiksa in the world. It's really true. And I have no idea about any of this. And so I was like, well, let's give her, like, let's, like, I don't 
know. Maybe she didn't mean it like that. And Ben's like, no, she totally like knows what those means. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. I'm 37. And like, this is the first right. time. And Ben's like, <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to get, didn't know it either. And he went along with this for months without realizing what the name we've chosen meant. And he's from Mumbai. Why would he know this? See, so we're, this is what, we're, I'm not from Mumbai. I'm from Rochester, New York. It's like the same thing. <laughs> all right. We're going to get to uh, uh, the Jewish Jew uh, title. Um, but before we do, uh, you have, so you have 68 people writing for this. Um, more or less. I mean, I, we've had more more people who have expressed an interest and sort of dropped off the horizon Poor people who have been poor people, but it was about six eight at one point. Yeah. So, so tell us about who these people are and where where you've got coverage. <laughs> well, we've had we've had some really good pieces from. Um, we've done a terrific job covering Asia. We've got India. We've got Southeast Asia. We've got someone working on North Korea, not in North Korea, but working on North Korea from Southeast Asia. Um, we've had. A terrific piece from a Venezuelan who's in exile in the United States and Venezuela. We've had um, we've got Germans, we've got Ru a Russian. I wouldn't say Russians. We've got a Russian. Um, and who else do we have? We have we have um, a couple of anonymous correspondents who don't like to be named, but uh, who have reported from Mexico City. And, um, we've got Israelis. We've got who else we have? We have, we have a, a Slovenian. <laughs> and all of these people are reporting from their actual from the the countries in which they're from. Or well, there are some some people who are reporting on other countries because it's not very hospitable to report from North Korea. Um, right. I mean, so you will get some to report from North Korea, but I don't know if we would be able to protect them. And um, and what is the subject matter that's within um, that's within scope? for you guys i mean the the cosmopolitan globalist um you know reporter in slovenia is is covering like what in slovenia is within scope for you guys like slovenian domestic politics is that but we're looking for stories that have a genuinely global significance um we're not necessarily interested in um well i mean we might be interested in a story about about rubbish bins in slovenia if it's relevant if it's something that everyone in the world can read and think well that is somehow relevant to problems of local governance in in my corner of the world um but our remit is genuinely global the stories we did a series on energy for example that I, I thought was really really good we had a really good debate about the best way to provide energy for all 7.8 billion people in the world. Um, keeping in mind, we, we have the perspective of people who are coming who are coming from developing countries who would like to continue developing. We have the perspective of people who come from island nations who would like not to be flooded. Um, but I thought I thought it was a really good discussion, um, and that's the kind of issue we want to treat: genuinely global issues. Um, I think there are a common set of challenges. I, I was the summit for democracy has received almost no news coverage, which I find very interesting. It's um, it's this big event, but it's not being written up. But a lot of the things the people, the participants, have been talking about are the things we are also concerned about. There are some common challenges to all 140 nations that purport to be democracies right now. Yeah, but so like, it, do you find, so I think that this is like a fascinating way to kind of tell this story, which I actually really, really love. Um, you don't know me at all, but I, I'm a, I'm a law professor by trade and I do a lot of writing about social, I'm a journalist also and I do social media stuff and like my work is on social media, like the study of the platforms in particular. But like one of the things that I really love is that during the pandemic, I went and lived in Cape Cod where my parents have a house and we kind of escaped there out of Brooklyn. 
And they have a very small print newspaper that comes out once a week called the Provincetown Independent that serves like, and it's all one of the things that I had forgotten was that like basically all local news is land use hearings and like kind of conversations about how land is being used and regulations around land. And it ended up being this tremendous, like it's something that we don't have also in Brooklyn because it's such a large metropolitan cosmopolitan area that like, like, we, you know, you find it, but it's not really quite the same. And so like, now I have like this wonderful, I like, I still subscribe to this paper and like, but it has incredible um, application, even though it's in this tiny remote seafaring village, that's tourist based population and economy that is like seasonal. But it has tremendous overlay into like everything that I teach and everything that I do, even in like this. So I really love that idea. Do you think that it's that kind of one to one with what you're trying to kind of show people? And that in that sense, you're kind of leveling problems across different types of populations and democracies? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, You know, we're not the only country that's having a few problems with democracy right now. And there are many things we could be learning from other countries that are struggling with the same problems. But because there's so little coverage of it, I don't think that I think that Americans still don't realize that what they're experiencing is by no means exceptional. It's it's really part of a global pattern. I mean, they may have heard this, but it's not very real to them. This is part of a global democratic democratic recession, as they're putting it. Yeah, it's an interesting I, question. Why should there, why should so many democracies be experiencing the same problem all at once? All right, yeah. so I want to ask you about the name. Mm-hmm. Um, the name. I have three possible theories about the name, and I'm curious which one is right, and um, or if they're all wrong. So theory number one is that you're basically tweaking or trying to tweak the people who say, who believe that, you know, interest in overseas affairs is is kind of rootless cosmopolitanism or, as Bannon likes to say, globalism and the mm-hmm. sort of the province of George Soros and the international Jew. Um, and this is kind of a tweak at this and say, hey, we got people all over the world who are actually really cosmopolitan globalists, meaning they're cosmopolitan, i.e. they think about things all over the place, and they're globalists. They believe in knowing about the globe. That's theory number one, possibility number one. Theory number two is it's actually a reference to the way people talk about you. You've got a name that's obviously Jewish name, uh, and I'm sure you've had your share of anti-Semitic trolls saying, oh, Claire Belinsky, that fucking cosmopolitan globalist. Uh, and so you've just kind of named it after yourself, uh, probably along with a bunch of your writers. And the third possibility is, uh, which I now know to be false, is that Kate is right, was right, and that the name was uh, in, in was chosen unironically because you said, oh, Maybe what we need now is some cosmopolitan globalism. And so we'll have a public... Why are you both laughing so hard? Like those those words mean something outside. I, I know, the but they but, but they're they're not the specific word that the person who would have done it unironically would have chosen, at least in my view. But Claire could prove me wrong. So which of those three is actually the origin of the site, or is it something completely different? Actually, it's option four. All the other domain names were taken already. <laughs> <laughs> voila i love that shit that's that, exactly right looking trying to find domain names that weren't taken already and the, this is like the only thing that was remotely related to what we were doing that wasn't taken and i guess no one else wanted to be called a cosmopolitan globalist for some reason <laughs> yeah i can't imagine why i that sounds, like, that sounds like a group that i'd put together at yale law school frankly like and i would have no idea that other people were joining it okay <laughs> let's find out from the audience um 
whether Kate's uh, view of this is actually reasonable. No, everyone's uh, going to tell me that I'm unreasonable, Ben. We've done this type of thing before. <laughs> oh, my God. Did How long have you been in you Prairie Fair? About seven years now. Before okay. that, I was in Turkey for about 10 years. Awesome. Great. Well, I spent I spent like three, four months in Montpellier uh, when I went. Like, a yeah, it was beautiful for like um, before I went on the teaching market and it was some of the four best months of my life. And I literally wept when the plane took off from Paris. It was just like a really it's lovely, lovely, lovely time. Provincial town. It's so it, it's it's as sophisticated as Paris almost, but it's southern. Exactly. So it was like it was just like a perfect like I could take a tram to the beach and I could go to the mountains and I could like yeah it was a really lovely really lovely lovely way to spend a couple of a couple of months. Um, okay, Ben wrote his poll. How am I going to vote? All right, there's the poll. Um, uh, we're going to see whether uh, whether oh so Kate's faring pretty well here. A lot of people going with the they didn't have they didn't previously know that this title could be read ironically can, you, can i actually ask is there like is there a is there a specific time in history or reference point that those words came to stalin. mean that or like what is it stalin 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 okay yeah. well well so the diff the two different words at different times right so claire why don't you give us the history of the word cosmopolitan in reference to anti-semitism yeah i mean that it's um the, the the charge is the rootless cosmopolitan the the Jew who has no deep connection to any place and is whose allegiances are to international Jewry as opposed to um, the country to which she should properly have oh. to be allied um, and well globalist has really has really made its made its way into its own recently I mean that it's um, it's become almost synonymous with 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 Jew and right wing circles. Yeah, so I I think like I thought Cosmo the globalist was about being like pro immigration, like literally, and like it pro, is, like, but pro immigration race. in the sense of the Great Replacement theory, That's right? The the, the, oh. the 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 George Soroses of the world are importing lots of uh, brown people so that you the white person lose your job right that's yeah, that's the that all of the time i think that it's really i would like to say thank you for always like thank you ben for always being the one that teaches me all of these terrible terrible words and names and like ideas about jewishness i would like to say that this is a sign i have really good friends and i choose my friends well that i've never come into contact with these philosophies yes yeah, so, at all so so Toy Tanks makes an important point, uh, actually, in the chat, which um, uh, I think is, is, is worth uh, fleshing out. The term globalist has a non-anti-Semitic meaning. Um, yeah, in fact, that's like its... The, like the Tom Friedman meaning of globalist. That's its, right, that's its normal meaning. But there's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which Steve Bannon uses the word that is laced with anti-Semitism, which yeah. is, you know, uh, so like a globalist is at some level the opposite of a nationalist, right? Mm -hmm. or, or what we used to call an internationalist, mm -hmm. right? And in that sense, the word is simply descriptive. But then there's like when Steve Bannon says, we're talking about globalists, what he means is George Soros, and that's international Jews. And yes. the word cosmopolitan actually has the same history which is, um, it was, so the Soviet state was formally anti-anti-Semitic, right? It was, it was very formally egalitarian. And, and um, but in fact, Stalin was, particularly in his older years, was, was virulently anti-Semitic. And uh, most of the late purges, the last purge, the doctor's plot was all about killing Jews. Yeah. And, um, and so, you, but you couldn't say we're going after people because they're Jews, because that actually defied the Soviet sort of Marxist egalitarianism. And so they used these code words that suggested overseas allegiances that suggest. And one of those words was cosmopolitan, which meant essentially the same thing that globalism means 
today. Is that a fair historical yeah. account? Yeah, it also showed up quite a bit in Nazi propaganda, the same, the same idea. Of the, oh. the, but the Nazis were much less afraid of just saying Jew. Yeah, they had because they had they had a racist view of the world, whereas the Soviets had this ethos that was, you know, that that leaned toward the code word because you couldn't actually just say uh, a Jew can never be a good member of the Communist Party. You could just say a uh, a cosmopolitan can never be a true patriot, and then it turns out all the people that you mean by that are Jews. Yeah, well, you see the same thing in, in for example. Um, Jewish um, striker pamphlets um, in the Sturma, where you, you've got the Jew with his tentacles all around the world, and now now you get the same illustrations with the word globalist in the, in the same place. <gasps> really? That's yeah. so. That's fa this is also just ja this is a Jack Balkan, Yale famed Yale Law School professor and also mentor of mine and uh friend of the show is coming on a monday but this is also he's also jewish and this also adds a lot of color to a long talk we once had in which he said that do you remember the airport this the airport like protests that happened during the trump like oh you, you mean after the travel ban yeah after the travel ban the airport protests and and Jack, I was at, I was finishing my PhD at the time, and Jack was just basically like, we're, I was at Yale, and he was like, this is, a, a, this is, this is because the world is cosmopolitan, and like, actually, it has become, the, the airports are the center of cosmopolitan globalism, and I never even put together in any way that that was, like, he was also drawing from, like, uh, like, his his like kind of anyways now this like is making these words make a different layer of meaning that i totally missed in the first telling of this um but this has been fascinating i'm really sorry for being so ignorant about this kind of i'm guessing like really sorry for not being aware of the slurs on your people like <laughs> you know it's all right we uh um it's 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 just a very very funny title um <laughs> And uh, yeah, and I love joke. it. Um, <laughs> so here is my uh, we have a million great audience questions right now. So I want to go to audience questions momentarily. Um, but I, I want to ask uh, because I want to subscribe. What is the name of the podcast? Our podcast? I mean, the, yeah. Uh, oh, OK. Well, first of all, you can find the Cosmopolitan Globalist at www.cosmopolitanglobalist.com. You can also subscribe on our Substack, same same name, and our podcast is the, um, <laughs> the Cosmopolicast. <laughs> the Cosmopolicast. Cosmopolicast, but we don't have a URL for it. You have to find it on our website. All right. So that is. Uh, so let's go to audience questions. I'm gonna. Uh, I haven't. Um, gonna just invite people on, and whoever shows up uh, first gets the first question. Because um, all the questions are good today. Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the image. All right, Christopher Argerus, uh, this is London speaking to Paris. Yeah. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Okay. Uh, hi, Claire. Um, so uh, I don't know if you remember, about ten years ago, um, there was this uh, social media honeypot spy affair uh, with the account. Morris era, and you wrote about oh, that. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I like the article. People haven't read it, but um, so I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts, like a decade on, about government agencies, defense contractors, and other private companies using similar operations to gather intel or gain market advantage? Because I remember you said at the time that you you had written a, a, a spy novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lying um, eyes, so it had s similar kind of themes. I really do not have not given that case any thought since you wrote since you read that article. So I don't have any up to date thoughts about that. Um, I'm trying to remember what the details of it were. It involved. I mean, it, it now seems really early social media, doesn't it? Now we're really used to the idea of people on social media not being what we think they are. But that was that was sort of early days when I think we were all a lot more naive and much more willing to believe that people to whom we spoke on social media 
were exactly who they said they were. No, now I don't think Mike, that. Michael Nelson, the floor is yours. Hi, Michael. Good to good to hear from you and learn more about what you're doing. I had two questions, and maybe that the answer to both questions is no. But the first question was whether you've seen this new movie, French Dispatch. Uh, no. about an American small town newspaper that sets up a bureau in Paris. So I recommend it highly. The other one is, uh, have you read the book On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder? And you, you mentioned authoritarianism in the 20th century in Europe. And I'm curious whether you, you were as impressed by the book as I was and whether he, he missed anything. Is there any, no, anything I thought he was dead on. I thought he was dead on. And, um, you know, I lived through the Erdogan years in Turkey from the beginning of his time in power to the time I left, at which point it was pretty obvious this was this was a full-fledged authoritarian regime. So I saw the entire thing. And I, I think anyone who's lived through that, anyone who's studied that, understands that some of the things we saw during the Trump era were deeply disturbing and part of a, an international, well-established pattern. So I think he was absolutely right to be as alarmed as he was and to point these things out. How did you come to be living in Turkey? I had a boyfriend there. Um, you know, I, I I was dating a guy there and then we broke up and I was still living there. But by that time I was really in love with, with Istanbul. I mean, it's just, it's just one of the great- Istanbul's cities. just one of the great cities in it's the world. One of the great cities of the world, if not the great city of the world. And it's also just fascinating. It's just so interesting. And there was so much going on politically, stuff I'd never seen before. I would never live through an authoritarian takeover. Um, and so I stayed and I, I stayed as long as I could with, you know, until I really felt it wasn't safe for journalists to be there anymore. Certainly not for me to be there anymore. Tim Smith, the floor Hi. is yours. Hi, I'm Hi. actually probably one of Claire's most frequent commenters on this site. <laughs> so I, I've been on a little fun before too. I, it, it doesn't fit my work schedule as much as it used to. So well, kind of change your work off. schedule. I know, I know. You know, quit your job, do whatever yes, it takes, but, but don't drop off in little fun. That's <laughs> we expect our audience to organize their lives around in little fun, and I, I understand that you don't may not think it's that much of a priority, but uh, you're wrong. Well, my question was, and this is something I've never thought I actually asked Claire before, but is the news coverage in kind of what I would think of as like the traditional French media in France, Le Mans, Le Figaro, uh, whatever the France television, has it changed too in the sense is, do they still have like a traditional level of coverage that they did back in the 80s or 70s or, or has their coverage dropped off French as news well? coverage of global affairs is significantly better than English coverage. It's, um, I mean, if you pick up a French newspaper, it will have a, the ratio of foreign to domestic news that we used to have in Anglophone papers. And I was particularly, I noticed this in particular um, when I was reading French coverage of the American election. And I was thinking, this is actually, it's really good coverage. It's as good as any American newspaper in, in terms of its insight and the quality of its writing. But that's not, it's not a bilateral relationship. You don't get French a U.S. coverage of a French election is even remotely in the same ballpark of quality. And you could say, well, everyone puts their best correspondence in the United States because it's still a really important country, probably the most important country. But there is something so strange about the asymmetry about it, of it that, that really, it really struck me that everyone knows so much more about us than we do about the world. That's so true. All right. So the ultimate car, uh, cosmopolitan globalist is now on screen alex manovich uh and i'm just going to reveal something <laughs> what do you about mean alex? by that i'm about to tell you this is you want to talk about the wandering jew alex manovich grew up in a family he's gonna not contradict me because this is true four members of his household four different citizenships of birth yeah. uh uh is that correct alex that, that is true. That is true. Um, 
Yeah, he one and, Canadian. And at one point, we probably would have been traveling. Yeah. Traveling Canadian, on four different passports at some point. One, one Canadian, Canadian, one American, one Argentinian, one Uruguayan. Um, uh, this is Jewish America in the po oh, Jewish post-1924 immigration, right? Yeah, well, even pre, but yeah. Um, yeah. It, All uh, right. <laughs> See, Steve Bannon, not, not Alex, to my he's coming for you. You are the globalist. Well, I, 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 I and you have so. a globalism question for Claire. Um, well, no, I mean, you know, this is a little self-serving, I guess. Um, but, you know, I've been living in, you know, I, I, I was born in Canada, but I grew up in Boston. Um, I moved to, uh, to Toronto uh, right after college. So I've been here now for almost 30 years. And I found personally that I identify much more as Canadian at this point. Um, and so that was kind of my question to you was, you know, to what extent do you still identify as as American? Um, you know, after I, I don't know exactly how long you've been abroad, but it sounds like it's 20 years ish. Um, you know, whether that has has changed over time and whether that experience is kind of typical or what other people's experience has been the, the people that, you know. Well, I, I grew up in the U.S. and I've been living overseas mostly since my 20s, but the imprinting is all completely American. And my instinctive first reactions to everything are and always will be American. The problem is that they're American circa 1990. And that's not the same thing as what it is to be American now. Um, so I have a time warp feeling whenever I'm looking at America or thinking about America, I'm thinking this is all wrong. This doesn't make any sense. This is not what America is. This isn't the way we're supposed to be acting. And I can't get my head around the degree to which our country has changed. Um, so it's so I am an exile, but it's an exile of time rather than a space. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. I think that makes complete sense. I mean, this is also the generational gaps in America right now. I think that they're really yeah. profound. So like, there. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people say this the same thing to me they they um i think you imprint on the age when you're in your early 20s and that's that's your standard for the rest I of have, your life think that you are in your early 20s and you believe that everyone else everyone else is the same way they were then too we've had this conversation on the show in various forms but i think that that's right and i think that there's also like an imprinting and then i also think that there is a period of history that like is too recent to be taught in school and uh in which you were too young to actually remember going through it for your own country that like is probably like probably 10 years before you and like 10 years like of your first 10 years of life in which like you just don't really have a sense of like what was really happening then and how it shaped things um, that I think is like a big gap in like kind of collective intelligence, right? Like I don't know anything about really the Re I don't remember anything instinctively about a Reagan presidency, like at all. Oh, yeah, I, I remember the Reagan era pretty well, but I'm thinking right. Like I don't like I know what I've seen in like media and what I've read in history books now, but like we never got to Reagan when I was <laughs> taking history class because it was too recent. Frankly, we barely got to the Vietnam War, and like then like there was you know so there were you know does that make sense like there just wasn't like you know i was well, born during a really long time to figure out that something was wrong in america that things were not that it wasn't going well and when I did that, you figure that out yeah um, i'm curious when trump won the, won yeah the i was nominee. gonna say like when we all figured so, it out <laughs> right no 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 but i mean there are these certain people who figured it out earlier oh, yeah. than that yeah, yeah um yeah. and there are people who uh figured it out late um i think the the moment at which all reasonable people figured it out was the fall of 19 of, of 2016 but um but you don't feel like you had either an advantage or disadvantage in assessing it by being abroad in that period of time, sort of looking at it from a distance? I think I had a disadvantage. I think I was just working off of a mental model that was obsolete. Um, and one in, in one that was particularly disadvantaged because my last memories of the US were the 
roughly the time the Berlin Wall came down, a moment of total American triumphalism and optimism. And I just didn't assimilate any of the economic changes or, or the, the polarization or the, um, the deep sense of, of resentment and frustration that seemed to be building up in, in a great many Americans. Um, I, I just, I was oblivious. Um, I was thinking about other things. I was observing these phenomena in Turkey and I just wasn't paying attention. And um, it felt pretty stupid when I realized. <laughs> As did we all. Paula, the floor mm -hmm. is yours. And Paula generously agreed uh, to be Aliced so that we did not, the, the shot did not cut Claire in half as it does when we have three people on screen. I specifically asked Paula's permission to bring her on screen and leave her there so that we would have four pains instead of three. Um, so yeah, my question is, do you think that there's just a dearth of interest in the US market for international news? So is the lack of news leading to this like you pointed it out, like lack of competency in international affairs, or is it vice versa? And I can like say from like personal experience, I remember growing up and telling people I was Lebanese and they would say, oh, you're lesbian. That no, <laughs> they just had never heard of a Lebanese person or the place. And, and did you life. respond to that? No, Lebian. <laughs> no. Um, but I mean, it was just such an interesting experience growing up that like people had no idea that my parents were born in another country that they just didn't know existed. Um, I think, how old are you? Because I, th I think she's it, 22. Right. Or I think 12. <laughs> when I was growing up, people would have would have associated with it with um, bombings and terrorism, at least. I mean, they would have had a negative association, but they would have at least had a sense of they would have had an association, right? Yeah, and um, the Marine barracks bombing that they would have had some associations with. I, I think the the sense of I don't even realize that that's a country that's that's pretty new. That's that's yeah. part of the growing insularity um, and the lack of information coming into the United States from abroad. Um, the question is: It because there's no demand that there's no news, or is it because there's no news that there's no demand? It's a really good question. Um, I think it's both. It it goes both ways. Um, it's there. There wasn't that much of a demand before, but people didn't realize there wasn't the demand, and editors asked for it because it was important and prestigious for your newspaper to have global news coverage, and because they thought it was good for people to read it. And then with the transformation in journalism such that all the pieces of the newspaper could be disaggregated they realized okay people aren't looking on these foreign stories so we can't we can't afford this we can't we can't justify it in the in the budget anymore and that has certainly encouraged people to forget that a wider world exists um so they don't know demand foreign news coverage when i went to when i went to college many of the things i had never heard of the united arab emirates before and I met someone from there and I remember them saying like, I'm from the UAE. And I was like, but you a what? Like, <laughs> I literally was like, is that like, I like remember Titan. This is very funny for everyone who knows that I misunderstood the spelling of Weber when I was in graduate school, but I mistyped UAE as like Y-O-O. A, like I was like, oh, a country named UAE. Like, no, not at all. Anyways, so hi, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Wattenbarger, the floor is yours. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to okay. cut you off there. Not it was an important story. So, go, go, go ahead before no, Richard okay. asks his question. Oh. Sorry. Okay, okay. So this guy I knew in college was dating a girl. He just wasn't that crazy about her. But they went out to a disco and they had you know flashing strobe lights and really loud noise. And he he was enamored with it. And he said, "I love UV." And you can imagine what she heard. <laughs> he, he, he had to disappear for a month. He, could, he, to, he completely disappear. All right, so wait, what's UV? UV? Ultraviolet. Ultraviolet. Oh, oh, okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought you meant. But, oh, oh, I love you. Oh, okay, sorry. Okay, also right. I'm a little slow, so it's and maybe did not. Did her name start with V? No, it was just like you know she's in a disco with this guy and she's really into him, but he's not really. And he says, "I love you, V." And then you know, the next thing you know, he has to go into hiding. 
Richard Wattenbarger, who also has to go into hiding, hiding because of his propensity to listen. Oh my to... God! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, all right, I won't say it. Richard, the floor is yours. You know, I hadn't been listening to that guy for a long time until yeah, let's we started make having this little guys. feud. So. <laughs> It's yeah. so there. Bruckner um, Claire. That's like the whole joke. They're that right. dirty. Anyways, go ahead, Richard. <laughs> so um, I watched, uh, I've watched in recent years as, uh, as my friends, especially in, um, in the UK, have been, you know, uh, uh, you know, sat by and watched Brett, Brexit happen and been all distressed about that. And, and then you know, seeing the rise of you know, uh, Marine Le Pen and and so on. Um, so I, but I, I'm curious that to what extent do you find that people in today's France um, still identify as European in more than just a geographical sense that they subscribe to a notion of a sort of a, a, a European or maybe a Western European uh, polis or unity? well, we're we're going to find out in the coming presidential election because this is going to be a big issue. I mean, Macron is definitely trying to style himself as Mr. Europe um, and France as the leading cultural military power in Europe, and, you know, especially now with the UK out, but his view is, okay, Europe should be a vehicle for French, for the French, for French power projection, and Europe should be a counterweight to the US and China. Um, and he's up against, you know, it, it looks like um, Zemmour is, is doing very well. I don't know if he's going to continue to do well, but both Zemmour and Le Pen are obviously uh, not enamored of this vision and do not see Europe as being an appropriate French project. Um, and then we've got um, the new conservative candidate, uh, Valérie Pécresse, who has a somewhat different vision of Europe, but we don't know that much about it because she's still quite unfamiliar to us. Um, and I don't know whether she's, I don't know how she's going to disambiguate herself from Macron, but it might be on the issue of Europe. She might have a different vision of it. But Macron definitely, if, if and I think he will be reelected. I strongly think he'll be reelected, but he is Mr. Europe. So if the electorate agrees with him, then I guess you can say the French still feel that they're European. And And, and how do you assess Zamour. I mean, he's he he's seems vile. he seems like kind of in some ways worse than either of the Le Pens. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I would. Well, worse than Le Pen. It's, it's kind of a it's a competition with um, with no bottom. I mean, they're 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 all vile. The Le Pens are vile, and he's vile. Um, but they're kind of vile in a known quantity way, and he's vile in a in a um, in a novel way. This oh, strikes me as very like, sorry, doesn't this strike you as Trump, Trumpian and as uh, Berlusconi and no, not? Well, he's a much, much more sophisticated character than Trump. Um, I mean, he's, he's articulate. He's a good debater. He's, he's, um, he, he presents a much more flattering version of France back at itself than Trump does of the U.S. Um, Interesting. So who would you compare him to? Is he a, a Neil Farage character? Like, what's his... Like, if you had to explain to him, to an American audience, by analogy, how we should understand Zamor, what what are we talking about? Maybe someone like Sora Bermani. You know, someone someone who's... <laughs> a little more slick, but who's really a sinister person? Huh. Um, someone who really, who who really seems to believe things that people, that decent people wouldn't wouldn't espouse, wouldn't believe. I so mean, what, what 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 in your judgment are the the top three things that he espouses apparently with actual conviction that he really believes that that are is really grotesque. I mean, he, he he's really a, a Vichy apologist and his enthusiasm for the idea of deporting Muslims from France is really disturbing. I mean, no one should be saying deportation 
in a, in a country like this it has history it has um and then uh, the the odor of violence that's that surrounds him and it just he had a big rally out in Vietnam last weekend and it just evolved into a complete brawl with his with his followers just just wasn't the, was this the was this the video that i saw of a woman being punched repeatedly in the face yeah yeah, yeah. i mean like his followers are men who punch women this is not nice you don't want people like that around you it's not it's, uh, it doesn't speak well of you if you inspire that and what's his background he's a jew from um he's a he's a from algeria from um the Pied-Noir background, you know, he was, he, his family came to France um, after the war, um, in the wake of decolonization, I think, and um, he's, hmm. he's, he seems to be someone who has, um, compensated for some kind of insecurity by deciding he's going to be more French than the French and more anti-Semitic than the anti-Semites. Um, and he's a, he's a well-known, well-known television commentator. He's on, he's on a show, he's on a channel called C News, which is likely to Fox and that it's very right wing. Um, and, uh, he's written a, a couple of best-selling books. Um, and he, he seems to be, have tapped into something, uh, mm -hmm. A sense that a sense in the right that the the pens aren't going to take them where they want to go. And so, how do you expect him to? Do do you expect him to? I assume he'll make the second round. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be Pesca versus Macron. I uh, think I think uh, the right is going to consolidate behind her because she's just a much more serious candidate. She was the candidate when I was there in twenty seven. 20, the, the summer of 2018, I guess. So, yeah, it was, um, no, 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 that was, sorry, 20, summer of 2017. Yeah, she was, it was like, it was right, it was following Trump and she had had her, she was having her moment and like her face was all over billboards and it was, yeah, it was also a very weird time to be in the south of France for that reason. Like, it was an incredibly, um, like a lot of, I had, I actually experienced like outright racism that I had never, I would never have heard ever in New York or frankly, I don't think it would have happened in the United States, but I had like, I would go to a bar and I would like, someone would say like, Oh, where are you from? And I would say Brooklyn cause in, in French. And then they would say like, Oh, I'd be standing next to a black person that was also at the bar. And they'd say something like, Oh, you must be used to this cause you're from Brooklyn. And I was like, we used to what? And they're like, black people. And I was like, like, what? Like, what? what is this? Like, I just like literally never, like, it was, it was a very, it was a, it was a very, um, like Southern French culture was very, yeah. uh, very strong and very different uh, than even Southern American culture as we kind of think of it, I think. So. Well, so I would have said, but um, I'm realizing there's a lot about American culture I didn't understand and that I was never exposed to when I was growing up. I, I, right. I came from a sheltered background, as, as as you did, and I just didn't know the kind of people who would say things like that. But I now realize there was a lot of America I just never knew. And um, an old boyfriend of mine, Turkish actually, who spent about 10 years in America, we were talking about this, and he told me about hearing... He, he had dated a girl from the South and he, he told me about hearing the most vile kind of anti-Semitism and you know, stuff that I'd never heard when I was growing up and racism. Um, and he'd obviously had a different experience of America than I did. And I thought, I don't know what kind of, kind of, kind of lowlifes he were hanging out with, but now I see that there are actually a lot of lowlifes in America that I just never knew about. Yeah. I also think as you get older, you become attuned to it. Like you don't like you if these words don't make sense to you if like cosmopolitan globalism doesn't make sense to you or code for something no one's taught you that no one's ever like you know whispered to you that that's what it is then like it just passes over you and you never develop an antenna for those types of moments whereas like if you're attuned to something and it's like made clear like and if i mean I think that Paula was on before saying that she was, you know, the lesbian Lebanese type of thing. Like, 
that would never be clear unless you actually were presenting as Lebanese to somebody and like had that type of interaction. Like otherwise you have no calls to understand it. Um, but this is part of the, the allure of globalism in the non-Jewish sense, but also in the Jewish sense. Go Jews. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. Claire Berlinski, it's crazy that uh, we have never met before. I like you a lot, Claire. Um, it's great to it's great to meet you in person or in what passes for in person um thanks to president ilvis for suggesting that we had you have you on um and i despite your living in france as we say to our guests you're a great american uh and uh come back soon I'm we're gonna leave it there yeah, we're okay. gonna leave it there except that you should subscribe to to the cosmopolitan globalist on substack which i just did and um uh and you all should too uh it says it has hundreds of subscribers right there on the um on, on the on the substack you can uh make that a, a hundred more if you all do it um we will be back a lot of hours from now with some guest who will dredge up from no, somewhere no it's jack balkan Oh, with Jack Balkan. He's going to be talking up. about the Presidential Commission on the on the Supreme Court. So, who's going to be talking about the Presidential Commission of, on the Supreme Court? And that'll be a lot of hours from now because we don't do seven days a week anymore. But until then, KK, we don't have fun anymore. But we do have France. We do have France. Claire, a pleasure. So nice to meet Thanks. you. Thanks for staying up. You're up way too late. Go to bed. That was genuinely fun, not just in lieu of fun. But it was ah, genuinely fun. don't tell anyone. We try to keep that on the DL. But yes, we'll, we'll whisper see. it.